Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 50th episode of the podcast Byzantium and Friends. Yes, that's right. We've reached 50 episodes. And so I thought that we would do something a little bit different for a change. Today's uh, episode is more like a panel discussion with two guests on the question of if you could meet and interview one person from Byzantine history, who would it be and why? The question was originally posed to me by one of my guests, Alexander Sarandis, and enthusiastically taken up by me and my other guest, Fotini Kondili. So what's the thinking behind this question? Well, there are a number of ways to approach it. One would be, who would you like to meet simply because you're more most curious about that person or have, and, and this is a temptation that I think we all had to resist somewhat, which is to want to meet the person we've worked on the most. Uh, and it's a, such an obvious temptation. So for example, yes, I would like to meet someone like Procopius or Pselos or people like that I've written a lot about. Uh, but as you will see, uh, all three of us uh, took a more responsible professional approach to this, which was not just to indulge our own personal curiosities, uh, but to maximize the advantage for our field. In other words, what are the sorts of things that we don't know about, uh, we can't learn about in our sources and would most like to add uh, to the material that historians of Byzantium have at their disposal? Now, there are fields of scholarship that operate very largely on the basis of interviews. Um, and some subfields of anthropology and sociology and ethnography and so on. And these fields, their methodology requires very intensive interviews, which are very carefully structured and planned and their whole methodologies for them. And presumably what we will propose will fall a little bit short of that kind of rigor, though possibly Alexander came close. And scholars in those fields who sometimes look over at what we're doing are, <laughs> in my experience, uh, they're sometimes shocked or even appalled at the way in which we, yeah, you know, use statements made by an author in one century to describe the values and beliefs of some average person in Byzantium in another century. <laughs> we do that. We, we actually do that. And that is from the standpoint of certain modern methodological fields that have access to their informants and their sources, this is unacceptable. So the thinking behind um, yeah, our approach to this question was largely, who can we get that would maximize the amount of new information that we would like to have for some particular question and in so doing to reveal our methodologies, our priorities, uh, you know, the, the blind spots in our knowledge that we are acutely aware of um, a lot of the time, or the blind spots that we sometimes tend to forget that we have because we're so used to dealing with the existing sources and, you know, focusing on what they do give us and not paying too much attention to what they don't because we will never have access to that. But what if we did? Through what kind of individuals or what specific individual would we like to rectify those gaps in our knowledge and our data about the history of Byzantium? Also, we wanted to have a fun conversation, and indeed we did. I hope you enjoy it too. I, this was one of the funnest ones I've recorded, but that happens when you have a, a couple of guests and we're using our imagination. So my guests are Fotini Kondili, a 
professor of Byzantine art and archaeology at the University of Virginia, and Alexander Sarandis, a Byzantine historian, University of Warsaw. Many thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting these conversations. So here we go. If we could meet one person from Byzantium and interview him, or in the case of Alexander, interrogate him for a week or two weeks, who would it be and why? Uh, welcome, Fotini Alexander, to the podcast. Thank you, Adoni. It's great to be here. Thanks, Anthony. Yep, good to be here. Uh, so Alexander, you're back for the second time. I had you on uh, an episode on, on rating uh, just a few, well, about yeah, a couple months ago now. Um, and actually, I, I've actually thought of something to present that ties in with those interests of, of yours. Uh, so um, I've already explained the setup of this episode in the introduction. So why don't we just jump right into it? And since, Alex, you're the one who proposed this uh, format to me a long, long time ago, so you get to go first. So why don't you make your pitch and then we'll discuss it. Okay, so uh, my interviewee from Byzantine history would be Hildegas, a Lombard warlord who operated mainly in regions north of the empire's lower Danube frontier in the 540s and 550s. He was exiled from his native Lombards at a young age and went on to command units of and to spend time among the Slavs and the Gepids. He fought for Totila, the Gothic king, against the Eastern Romans in Northern Italy, and later in his career went over to the Eastern Roman Empire, commanding a unit of Palatine guards, the Scolari, uh, in Constantinople. We know about his career from Procopius's History of the Wars, our main contemporary political history uh, of the reign of the Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian. I would be particularly interested in the insights a man like Hildegas could offer into the Balkan borderlands of the Eastern Roman Empire. And this has been an important focus of my research to date. In particular, we know remarkably little about the so-called non-Roman, inverted commas, barbarian world north of the Lower Danube frontier. Our sources were all written in the Eastern Roman Empire and show comparatively little interest in communities living beyond the frontiers, especially the northern frontiers. When they do write about this barbarian north, they use a series of time-honoured prejudicial stereotypes derived from the classical literary traditions in which they wrote. And it's hard to decide whether these were being used because they fitted their subject matter perfectly, whether they covered up a lack of knowledge, or whether they were part of wider discourses used to pass comment on Roman barbarian relations. Archaeology can help us to some extent, giving us uh, an idea of settlement patterns, economies and burial practices. But it cannot tell us about the intricacies of how the various groups inhabiting these regions organised themselves, uh, their social and economic lives, and what they thought and felt about themselves uh, and the world around them. Hildegas would be ideally positioned to tell us about all levels of societies beyond the Danube because he'd spent time both at the royal courts of the Gepids and the Lombards, but also as an exile among uh, Slavic and Varni tribes, presumably living among the farming communities east of the Carpathian Mountains we know of through the archaeology. Hildegas would also be a fascinating person to speak to as someone who'd lived not only among these different groups north of the Danube, but had also fought on behalf of the Goths in Italy 
and had served as a military commander at Constantinople. So my debriefing of Hildegas would be structured thematically, designed to get him to compare the different regions, polities and cultures he'd experienced. So rather than getting him to describe life in Constantinople in abstract terms, I'd encourage him to describe it through the lens of his experiences of the world outside the empire. Anthony kindly said that I could debrief my interviewee for a number of days, so ideally I would need around six days, or at least six long uh, sections. So day one would focus on everyday life and settlement patterns. Where did people live? How did they support themselves? What did they eat? What sorts of settlements existed in Gepid and Lombard regions in Pannonia? This is in modern terms, Hungary, and also in Slavic areas in Valachia in modern Romania. How large were these? What did they look like? I would also want to find out how they compare to settlements in Gothic Italy and the Byzantine Balkans. Communications and infrastructure would be another area of discussion. Uh, I'd want to ask him how easy he found it to move around these the different regions he, he'd inhabited. The theme of day two would then be political structures and economies. How were the various Gepid, Lombard, Slavic polities organized? Were these states with regulated systems of taxation or regular tribute collection? Were they stratified? Well, how stratified were they? Did they have different types of elites? And what, what did they do? I'd be keen to learn the extent to which groups north of the Danube were reliant on the economic resources of the Eastern Roman world and how far these were acquired via raiding or through commerce. Was the organization of provincial life in the Byzantine Balkans and Gothic Italy radically different in terms of taxation and centralization? On day three, we would discuss his experience of political courts and royal or imperial ideologies. What were the Gepid and Lombard kings, Slavic Archondes, and the Eastern Roman emperor like as people? In his opinion, what drove these men? How did they present themselves on formal ceremonial occasions in terms of their dress and behavior? And what other aspects of these settings did he find striking? Who else was in attendance? And how were they expected to present themselves and behave? What was the great palace like in Constantinople? Did the Gepids and Lombards have palaces or you know, reception halls? At the root of the day's questioning would be an attempt to gauge what differences he perceived between the political ideologies of the Eastern Roman and non-Roman leaders. By day four, we would move on to Hildegas's experience of armies and warfare, his main professional realm. And my core aim here would be to learn as much as possible about his experiences of military campaigns, especially raiding, and battles and sieges. With military campaigns, um, how were armies supplied? Where did they live? Where were they accommodated? How was intelligence connect collected on enemy movements? Um, I'd want to find out what motivated men like Hildegas to raid other communities and what these raids consisted of and how integral they were to political relations in the borderland. What were battles like? Um, I, I think it'd be interesting here to find out what influence a leader could have over such encounters. Were these carefully regulated, choreographed tactical encounters or uncontrollable clashes in which hundreds, possibly thousands, uh, lost their lives? Again, the aim would be to interrogate Hildegas about the similarities and differences between the Eastern Roman 
and non-Eastern Roman fighting forces. Day five would move on to the cognitive worldviews, identities, languages, and religions of the various communities Hildegas had lived with. It would be especially interesting to find out more about identity, which has been a hot topic in work on late antiquity in the early Middle Ages for many decades. Did people have strong cultural identities? And did these, or, or were, these, or were these confined just to the ruling elites and the kings? Or did normal farming communities also identify themselves as Gepids, Heralds, Lombards, etc.? And if so, what did this entail? What were they proud of in particular, and how did they project these identities to others? Did Hildegas and contemporaries have any concept of the history of their groups? How did they think of it? Was it important to them? Uh, another aspect here would be oral history. I mean, were these groups entirely illiterate? If not, what sorts of texts did they produce? If they were illiterate, how were oral traditions used to transmit knowledge and preserve knowledge? I'd also want to find out Hildegas' views about identity in the Roman world. How did the identities and cultures of elites in Constantinople at the court differ from those of communities living in the provinces? Was there really any difference between the culture of military men living on the Roman and the barbarian sides of the Danube frontier? Finally, it would be fascinating to find out Hildegas' experiences of religion, especially the extent to which barbarian groups, and for that matter, Roman provincial populations were Christian, and what this meant to him and them in terms of belief and ritual. So having given me the detailed background of the barbarian and Roman worlds in which he'd lived, I would then want Hildegas to spend his final day with me in the 21st century, telling me more about himself and his life. Where was, his, where was he born? What was his upbringing like? How did he attain and hang on to these positions of military power that he held? What skills, contacts and behaviors made this possible? I mean, I'd have all manner of specific questions on his own uh, life uh, that we know of through Prococcus. But more broadly, what were his ambitions? Why did he move around so much? Was he driven by any sense of identity or belonging or purely by material wealth and power? After the final day, I would let him return to the mid sixth century, probably advising him to avoid the court of the Gepid King Thorisin, who eventually had him murdered in 552. Here, I've had time to outline only very generally the things I would ask him. I mean, the entire list of questions would probably fill a small book. Of course, it's possible that Hildegas's intellect and interests would prevent him from being able to answer all of my questions. And the debriefing would ultimately only give me one person's perspective, which would, of course, be biased to varying degrees. It would nonetheless give us the sort of insight into the early Byzantine borderland world, which we could only dream of and perhaps highlighting areas, themes, ways of thinking, which, which I haven't even previously considered. So that's, that's it. Wow. <laughs> Alexander, that is a, that is a rigorous debriefing. Um, I, you're way more prepared for this than, than I am. Uh, and you, this would certainly um, be more likely to, to win a grant. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you've won a lot of grants in Europe because that was structured. Um, and. Uh, you, you, you're basically going to get the guy to write a dissertation in, in a week, right? Like that's basically what you're doing. Uh, and uh, that raises all kinds of questions about human experimentation and <laughs> human so the thing, the thing was I had, I had to structure it because when I sat down, yeah. there was just so much yes. 
that I didn't know where to begin, really. So I, I actually just took a forensic approach. All right. Let me start with a light question and give Fatini some time to marshal her thoughts. Um, and so this is more like a, a gossipy kind of question, but are there any other more famous individuals from the sixth century whom he would have met and whom we can ask him for some, you know, gossip about? That's yeah, very good question. Um, well, he would have met the kings and the rulers of these groups north of the Danube, which, which we also hear about in Procopius's wars. So he would have met the Gepid king Thorosin, who was a, a major a major problem for the uh, imperial authorities in the 540s and 550s. And he, he, he we, I would argue, he was one of the major threats to the region. So he would have met Thorisin, uh, at whose court he spent some time. Uh, he would have met the Lombard uh, ruler, um, Audwin. I guess he would have met him before he was exiled from the Lombards, because he was exiled as a child along with his father, because his father had been next in line to take mm. the throne. Um, and so this had been usurped. Um, yeah, I mean, he would have met, well, presumably he would have um, at least attended the court, uh, the imperial court in Constantinople. Um, so he may have come across other important military f uh, officials in the empire. Um, yeah, certainly Justinian, right? And Justinian, yeah. He, I mean, he would have been, yeah, presumably attended imperial ceremonies of, of some sort. I mean, we know from um, the Chronicle of Malalas, for example, that when these you know, barbarian warlords were recruited, they were often received in great sort of ceremonial receptions in Constantinople, sometimes involving baptism, although we, we have no indication of, of that religious angle with the Hildegas. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fodini, you want to jump in or shall I go? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was amazed by your choice. Uh, you know, he's, he's such a great character to ask so many questions. Uh, about logistics and moving around and issues of identity and geography, things that, you know, we talk about and wonder and debate about uh, in scholarship. So it would be great to have some um, intel here. But I have to say that, you know, as you were saying there, for people like him, uh, we still have a lot of information, both from uh, historical accounts and archaeological data, to piece at least parts uh, of that of their experience together. But one of the things that I appreciated that you mentioned had to do with oral tradition. And while you kept talking about his adventures and moving around and things like that, you know, I was tempted to just ask, all I want to know is what kind of songs and uh, stories do you tell each other when you are marching, when you are camping, when you are waiting? So, you know, a lot of the things that we struggle so much, we know they're there. There are hints of that in historical accounts, in uh, epic novels later, but we still don't know. So we just assume that these people are traveling mute and they do not create their own uh, legends yeah. and stories where they can self-identify. Yeah. So that's the one. So, you know, I was, I was very happy to hear you say that. Um, and the other thing that, you know, always it's something that I have to um, really question myself when I think about the Byzantines and friends um, is um, this idea of value um, and, you know, uh, social values and cultural values, because here we're talking about people who are very seasoned in warfare and in politics, but I would love to have the opportunity to ask them things about what they think being brave in the battlefield actually is, instead of our modern concepts yeah. of what that 
could look like? I mean, is it that you die in battle or is it that when you see that you cannot win, you just run as fast as you can? I mean, what is what is being a good soldier mean? What 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 a good military tactic really looks on the ground rather than you know the accounts we have of the um of the manuals of how to to engage in warfare so you know the, these are the things that you know yeah. i think with someone like him you would have a great opportunity to ask yeah well especially on the or the oral history side of things is quite a sort of controversial topic when it comes to the issue of um you know, barbarian identity in this period because there's this suggestion that um that we can sort of trace areas of Gothic oral tradition through sources like Jordanes. Um, but then other people argue, no, Jordanes was very much embedded in the Roman world. He was writing through Roman traditions. So it's, and then some people who take, some people who prefer to see barbarians as very Roman and very part of the Roman world. Uh, and they, they don't like to see this idea of, they're suspicious of the traditional 19th century ideas of, you know, Germanic groups of barbarians and their traditions. And so they, they don't like this idea of oral tradition so much and, and they think it's been projected onto these groups. So yeah, it would be fascinating to find out. Also, also, how did they celebrate victories? Did they, you know, did they drink? What did, what did the <laughs> feasting can, uh, entail? You know, so. Yeah, I'd love that Fotini mentioned songs and that you're going into these um, areas of, you know, feasting and, and entertainments and so on, because there's a, um, there's a way in which this kind of question that is a debriefing of a historical individual can help us to answer the questions that we've been struggling with. And as you outlined are like, look like sort of chapters of dissertation or actually have a very important book right on the period for me. Uh, but then when, when Fotini mentioned songs, I was like, yeah, why don't you ask the guy to show us what a dance looks like, right? Which are things that just never enter our, like, that stuff is so far removed from our reach that we never even really think to ask, you know, whatever, but yeah, sing us a song, uh, show us a dance, right. Or, or you speak one of these many languages, by the way, what kind of languages would this guy have spoken at least on a basic level? Uh, Do you have a sense? Well, I mean, the, the the Lombards are sort of categorized in the historiographies as a Germanic group or, so presumably would have spoken some form of early Germanic, but the suggestions are that the, the, the types of warlords operating in this world would have potentially been multilingual. Um, yeah, he operated in within the Byzantine Empire. He spent time among the Slavs. So yeah, I mean, we would assume he spoke many languages. And in his dealings with Constantinople or the Roman system, would, would that have been Camp Latin or Camp Greek? Any sense for that? Difficult to, I mean, difficult to say. I mean, he came from the Pannonian area, which had been part of the Western Roman Empire. So, as of a guess, probably more Latin. More right, Latin. but that would be interesting. That would be an interesting thing to know. Another very interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah probably. Going, going back to your point about this, the, these, this cultural issues that we we really, yeah. you know, can't get at in in in, in through our sources that we have. Also, to what extent these feelings and these cultures and these ways of living affected their behavior and then um, in terms of political behavior as well i mean the thing i've always found interesting is in the longer term why some regions remain part of the byzantine empire and others don't um, and in a in a pre-modern state there's there's only so much coercion that can go on to keep these people part of the empire it had to be in their interests to be part of it so to what extent did those feelings 
have an influence on that. That, that would be right. nice. Pauline, any any other thoughts on that? Well, I just, I mean, this is something, Alex, the, what you just mentioned, this is something that I always think about, uh, you know, the groups I study and, you know, how they participate in empire building, what is the invested interest, because, you know, they, they do have options and we kind of forget this, that there is agency with all these uh, different groups that we study, and they do have a choice to either be for uh, the Byzantine mm. Empire or not. So, you know, uh, I think it's 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 worth asking that question, even when we were when we can't be sure about the answer, why these people, what happened, what kind of experiences do they have in life that at the end of the day they make them for or against this empire? And in what ways do they express it? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, there are the big events, the wars, the riots, and so on, but everything these people do in their daily life can be seen as a political action. And this is something that we tend to forget, especially if these are not high profile or elite agents, right? Yeah, and the person whom Alexander chose is I think ideally suited for that kind of question because he switched his allegiances so many times, all right? We can, we can just go through Procopius's <laughs> narrative and ask him, and when you did this, why did you, why did you do that? And right, what was going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. Good. Uh, for Dini, shall we turn to you? Sure. You're on. So mine, I will apologize. It's not that structured, but um, I will say that, you know, the person that I would love to have an opportunity to interview and, you know, ask a little bit about uh, their time and their life is this woman called Eleni. And we know a little bit about Eleni. Eleni is someone who lives in the early 14th century. She lives in this village in the north part of the island of Limnos in the northern Aegean. And at the point when we encounter her in 1304, she's a widow, uh, but she is also the head of her own household, which includes uh, her three grown-up sons, Constance, Ioannis, Nikolaos, and her daughter-in-law, Anna. Um, we know a little bit about the area that she lives in, in that uh, part of um, North Limnos. It's very close to um, other villages and some of the main fortifications and economic centers of the island. Uh, we also know that she has other family in the area. Both her brothers live in the same village as her, as well as her aunt, who's also named Eleni. Uh, she's a nun, but also the head of her own household. We know a little bit about Eleni's um, economic situation and property as well. She has at least two houses, a pair of oxen, donkeys, pigs, many sheep, uh, serves of a water mill. And I'll come back and say something about what it means to own one eighth or one fourth of a water mill in the early 14th century. Uh, She has land, some she she co-owns with her brothers and other lands, it's part of her dowry. Uh, She has some small vineyards scattered in nearby villages and at least eight fig trees. Now, the reason why we know all of this about Eleni is that she is registered uh, in the monastic act of the monastery of uh, Megisti Lavra on Mount, Mount Athos. So this is a time, uh, the 14th century, where the monastery of Lavra starts acquiring huge um, pieces of land and other types of properties on the island of Limos. 
So these archives then register the monastic fortunes and at the same time, they register the parakee. So these are dependent peasants who are tied to the monastic lands um, that are who are associated with the monastery. So when they are registered, someone like Eleni, their names, um, their family members, and their properties and tax obligations are also registered. So th this is how we get to know about someone like Eleni. Now, Eleni is a very interesting case because she gives us an opportunity to move away from an abstract understanding of the late Byzantine period uh, and zoom in into what actually happens uh, on the ground. And I say this because we're very used to think about uh, Byzantium in very abstract terms or in terms of institutions and structures. And when we do want to populate our story with people, uh, these are usually elites and they are men. So of course, you know, non-elites seem to have no agency, and of course, women even less so kind of being in the background and I don't know, like taking care of the house. So Lenny gives us the opportunity to see a woman who is living in a very interesting period and a very interesting place and see her being in charge of her own household, in charge of her property. I mean, she's registered and she, she maintains the family property for all her three sons, although they are adults and married themselves. Um, so we get a very different perspective from what we're used to when we think about the Byzantine period. Now, at the same time, as I said before, um, with Eleni, we get to see some choices and choices that non-elites have in a way to think about their agency and how they participate in big events. Because it's people like Eleni who produce um, agricultural goods, who pay taxes, who move uh, in the island, and they have the ability to occasionally force the hand of the empire by forcing the emperor and his elites to build fortifications. Otherwise, these guys are going to walk away and go somewhere else, which is safer. So the sea is a way for us to really explore how non-elites not only are living in this uh, period, but also the kind of options they have. Um, one of the things uh, that Eleni shows us through her example is um, the way that these rural communities um, adjust and you know, fine tune their socioeconomic uh, networks in order to deal with changes in demography and economy. For example, it's not an accident that we see Eleni in the beginning of the 14th century and see um, is co-registered with other members of your family. What they're trying to do here is keep the family uh, fortune together and not break it up in smaller pieces. So they're trying to be more effective uh, in the way they manage their own resources. So that's a way that she's dealing with scarcity of resources on the island. As I said, you know, this is an interesting time to live. We're in the 14th century, you know, something that in most books and scholarship is described as a period of decline. Mm. So Eleni and her story and her village shows us how these communities can be resilient and can think of different ways to deal with the political and economic and demographic changes of her period. The fact that she's in an island like Limnos, which you know, is so close to the capital itself, but it's on the path of main uh, trade routes that move commodities and people and ideas. 
uh, all around the Eastern Mediterranean, from Venice and Italy to the Black Sea, also gives us a perspective, an island perspective, if you like, um, and how you know this idea of islandness uh, plays into these historical events, both being you know very much connected through trade routes, but at the same at the same time being vulnerable to weather phenomena, but also uh, attacks. So this is so she she would be you know a great person for me to ask a couple of questions. So the first thing I would want to ask her is, well, you know, how does it feel to, to live with her grown-up uh, sons and her sister-in-law? And what does it mean when they're co-registered in the same unit? Does that mean that they actually live together or they just look like one unit in the eyes of the law and the, in the eyes of the tax collectors? One of the incredible things about some of the, these families, you know, we usually lump them all as peasants, as um, villagers, and we assume that they all share the same economic and social status. But Eleni seems to have some significant property uh, properties, and so uh, do her brothers. So I ask what they're doing with all these houses. So she has two houses, and her brothers have six, three in one villas and three in another. So. I'm very interested to understand a little bit how that works. Do they all live in these houses? Do they rent some of these houses? Uh, is there seasonal use for these houses? As an archaeologist, you know, I, I would like to follow her around basically and see what she does all day. I want to know more about her house, the size, uh, how many rooms are there. If there is a second floor, which usually we don't find in excavation, so, you know, this is something to lament. Where are the doors? Where are the windows? <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. Um, who has access to the house? Like, do visitors come in? Which parts of the house uh, do they get to see? How are these rooms being used? And what kind of activities happen there on a daily basis? And then I would like to follow her a little bit to the kitchen as somebody who studies um, pottery all the time. I would love to see a little bit of, you know, what cooking pots she has and what she cooks there and where does she do all this cooking and why she prefers certain vessels uh, for certain recipes. I would love to ask her questions about uh, glazed ceramic vessels. Limnos gets a lot of commodities from all around the Eastern Mediterranean and pottery that's produced on the island. So I would love to know where she gets to buy these things and how much they cost. And what are the what are the factors that influence if it's going to buy I don't know it's graffito ware versus a painted ware and I would love to know. Um, I would also like to know a little bit about her future plans. I mean, is Eleni planning to remarry because she's a widow in fourteen in thirteen oh four, or you know um, take the advice of her uh, aunt who obviously a widow now she's a nun, but she doesn't seem to live in a monastery. So she's still living in her house, she has taken vows, and she's, she still maintains, you know, um, the control of her household, which also means that she has struck a deal with a monastery to protect her finances. So I'm wondering what our Eleni plans to do. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, I going back to the house, you know, I would love to ask her a little bit about rituals and going back again to that conversation of the things, you know, that we cannot reconstruct from the kind of data we have in our hands. So who helped her build this house? How long did it take to build such a house? And then what kind of rituals are part of building 
building a house? What kind of songs? What kind of prayers? Um, are they killing a rooster and putting yes. that in the foundation? Like what's happening in, in that respect? You know, and of course I'm I'm saying this and I'm thinking about ethnographic uh, evidence for such things from the early modern Greek village, which is a very different situation. But still, I'm tempted to believe that there are certain rituals uh, that are associated with the house that were missing. So apart from you know, her house and her life, there are certain bigger questions that I want to ask. But what I'm really dying to ask is I want to ask her for directions. I want to ask her to tell me how to go from her village, let's say to Kotsinos, which is um, a nearby port and it's the market um, and it's an economic hub at that century. And I want her to give me directions. I want her to tell me what's the most effective way to go from her village to Kotsinos and what kind of landmarks I should look while I'm walking. And I say this because in the archival material from the monasteries from Mount Athos, they include long discussions of the landscape itself. Um, and we also, when I was on Limnos and doing field work, I was paying attention of certain features in the landscape that are more prominent, that I could imagine that this is how you navigate. But then again, I'm not a Byzantine. So they're very specific, Byzantine spe specific spatial practices that we're not aware. So asking her for directions would allow me to see what effective route means for her versus my GIS modeling to go from A to B, and also what kind of landmarks she would use to guide me that for me, I wouldn't be able to see. Um, so, you know, I this is this would be my top priority. If I only had the uh, Alex's first day, that this is how I would start. And then to finish off, you know, Eleni lives on the north part of the island, um, a place where we know from other archival material that this is where also these guys who are called Prosalente and they are uh, rowers for the Byzantine Navy are stationed. So I want to know if she knows these guys and, you know, are they real? Do they really live there? And what does that mean that the rowers of the Byzantine Navy are stationed there? Does that mean that Limnos repairs and boats for the Navy or even makes them? And if so, uh, where are they getting the wood? Because Lumnos has no woodland. So obviously it's coming from somewhere else. Uh, so if these guys are there, who else is there? I mean, we still know that there are many Italians in the island. We see Venetians coming and going. So I would love to know what she thinks about them. And then there are the Cumans. So there's a number of Cumans who have been stationed in that island as well. So I don't know if Eleni has encountered these people. I want to know her vision of what this other is or a, woman, a woman's perspective in, in a male world, right? That it's all merchants and military men. And yet Eleni gets to be um, the leader of her own household. So as I said before, you know, Eleni puts, uh, tells a very different story that we're not used to think about. I mean, of course, we know women are there and they're important, but um, we always think of them in the, in the very abstract way and a very traditional way when it comes to women. But this is another way to think about uh, empire building. I mean, Eleni is the empire. Mm. Eleni makes the empire being possible in 1304. So, you know, I would like to know what she has to say about that. 
Yeah, this is a fascinating trans transition from someone who, you know, spanned an entire, you know, frontier con uh, in, in, in the Balkans and worked at multiple courts and led so many different armies to a, a much more local uh, perspective. And I, I loved how, as an archaeologist, you would want to see her actually use the implements that you've been digging out of the ground for years. Like, show me what this does, you know, for you. Um, and also, I think we vastly underestimate peasant communities um, in Byzantium. And I don't just mean that in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, the abstract categories that we use, like agency and, you know, values and things like this. But in a very real sense, the complexity of their social organization is immense. And so set aside the complexity of our family uh, network, because I think all people on a certain level are kind of wired, you know, from evolution to very, very carefully keep track of family networks and th those kinds of things, friends, allies, that kind of thing. I think we do that intuitively without any kind of special training. But the, but precisely what you were talking about, the complex fiscal, right, and the ownership um, and relations to property, which in this period involved all of these people in owning, leasing, right, renting, part owning. So she's got a, some portion ownership of a mill with other people and all these partnerships, right? And she's employing people and being employed or whatever. And I just want to know, like, what were her math skills like? Because Right, you have to pay taxes on all of those things. And the taxes are fraction of a value of the fraction that you like. So how do they, you know, what kind of conceptual apparatus do they use to navigate the just the the, the legal mathematical aspects of their existence? I, I would find that fascinating. Yeah, no, no, that's great. And you know, in her case, I mean, I can understand how you can own one fourth of a water mill, but we have others who have like one third of a cow. So you're like, <laughs> How does that work? Or you know, uh, one fourth of, of of this area of beekeeping. So it's interesting because you know some of them are family members. It's, it's clear that they belong to an extensive family network, but others are not. They're neighbors, and this is the other thing that we uh, consistently uh, don't think about is you know this neighboring relationship, uh, relationships that can become very powerful. Because the thing is, you know, I mean, yes, we're all wired to you know keep together with our families, but sometimes, you know, the circumstances uh, force us uh, to change that uh, strategy. And this is something that plays out in the 14th and 15th century on Limnos. I mean, these tight communities, these tight families and co-owning property goes away after the, after the plague because oh, so many people right. have died and there is now more available land. So right. they are more willing to break away from the family core and go somewhere else and claim a new life. And you can see that in the archives a lot. So again, you know, we, we, we take these things for granted that these traditional societies that they all live together, this is not how it works on the ground. And this is where their agency comes in, that they are able to change, to reconfigure their social and economic networks every time something changes. This is what we still haven't give them, given them enough you know, uh, props for, right. that they can do that. Interesting. You both picked people who are on the cusp of or living through a, a pandemic plague. <laughs> Alex, any comment on any of that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, um, I suppose going back to this thing about how differentiated socioeconomic life was in this world. I mean, sometimes you read these 
slightly impersonal discussions of pre-modern agrarian communities and you get the impression that people are subsistence farmers living on the precipice all the time so I suppose with, with someone like Eleni who clearly has more property issues in the community it'd be interesting to find out you know just how how comfortable was she and her family and, and, and to what extent did you know a bad harvest for example affect them um, and then I suppose how you know how at a time of difficulty did, did communities work together or, or did that cause conflict that would be interesting but I, I also found fascinating this this idea that at a time of at a time of depopulation it actually resulted in more mobility because yes, no, quite I, often you, you read about this idea that that when there's more pressure on the land this is what causes the mobility yeah well, and, and again, again, I'm, I'm going to insist on this idea of agency because other families do exactly that, Alex. I mean, they decide to move uh, in new areas that, you know, it doesn't, it's not clear that these are villages. They're more like new founded uh, hamlets in more um, uh, extreme, you know, environmental situations to see if they can make it work. So this is where it gets interesting. I mean, you have all these villagers living under the same conditions and yet different families try different solutions. Again, you know, we lump all these guys together. And as you were saying before about property, these are supposed to be all to be parity. But if you if you see that list and you have people who only have half, uh, you know, a cow or one ox. So obviously uh, they have a lot of animals, but not no land. It means they're working on somebody else's land. Um, but then you have someone like Elenis's brothers who have six houses. So obviously within the, where we put them under the same socioeconomic category, these people have very different uh, economic signatures, which signals to me also very social um, signatures. Any, anyone who has spent time in a Greek village knows that everybody knows <laughs> if you are wealthier than your fellow villagers. And there are ways to express that a difference. So this is why I would want to follow her around. I want to see how different she acts, you know, uh, in, compared to other people in her village. And if people really understand that, oh, actually she has, she's more wealthy, she has more power to do certain things than I do. Uh, I know. guess also whether, whether there were central places, I mean, was there a square or, you know, where, where were these relationships performed? Well, one, one of the things that I always like to think, because, you know, there's so many references to uh, water mills and windmills uh, on Limnos. And then I think about some of the work that Sarun Gerstel has done on depicting uh, the miller as a person that commits sin. So he's on the hell side of the church, right? Um, and the reason for this has to do not only because they can cheat uh, you and get more money for what they're offering, but because they are in a position to gossip more because they encounter and they connect and interact with more villagers. And these windmills or water mills are usually on uh, the borders between villagers. So they allow you some pretty good intelligence of who is coming and going and what they're doing and also you know, how wealthy these people are. So that's, you know, uh, knowledge and information is power in these villages. Um, so, you know, having, owning a mill means that you, um, are better connected than others, and that matters as well. Yeah, another thing that you learn about 
the village life from the anthropological studies is how much the villagers lie to each other and to you, the, the external right scholar. Uh, All the time. It would, yes, it'd be interesting to know if the data that you have or think you have about it, Lenny, from these official documents, just how closely they relate to reality at all. Because you going in thinking, well, she owns two houses or whatever. And she, well, actually, it's three, but we don't talk about that one because, you know, whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, because that's got to be a big problem in our documents, I think. We, we assume that the official information is always accurate, and that's not even true today. Uh, and, and I also love the, that you would ask her to describe a terrain, right? Like, like psychogeography, like, so even take yeah. her to a terrain that you can see and she can see and say, well, describe this to me. And how would you get to like the place that you mentioned uh, just to see, you know, how they experience the landscape and, and what categories they have for, for processing it. Uh, I remember once um, this was on Lesbos nearby Island and I, I was doing a archeological survey at the time and I was trying to find this little chapel from local antiquarian writing, you know, they said there's this chapel here, and I was going around and I, just, I couldn't find this. So I asked what could only be described as a peasant to to tell me how to get to, you know, Ayorgis or whatever it was. And he basically he went through this long, complicated. You left and then right and left and right and then up and down and left and right. And I, so I wrote it all down, and I was going, and I realized that what he was doing is simply describing the curvature of one road. Correct. Yeah. There was only one way to get there. All he had to say was just take this and follow it and it'll be right there. Instead, he described all of the ins and outs of that road. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, this started with my, with my experience was very similar when I was there and, you know, would ask people to um, tell me where certain places were. I mean, everything had to be, you know, that rock formation, that fig tree. And I was like, well, which fig tree? This is, this place is, is covered with fig trees. I mean, I don't know which fig tree you're talking about, but this was also something that, um, you know, other scholars talk about that you only, when you work with these communities, this is where um, your status changes from a foreigner and an outsider to someone who is not exactly local, but a little bit closer to them is when, you have navigated this terrain so many times that you actually know when they're saying turn right to this fig tree, you also know that fig tree. Mm. So, you know, this is how I got my creds right. working on that island because, you know, the first year I was getting lost all the time and people would make fun of me and point and say, oh my God, is that great, uh, crazy person. But by the fourth year, they were like, oh yeah, you know, she knows how to go there. So, you know, I was I was part of a larger community than I wasn't before. Um, were so you yeah, ever told? Nice. Were you ever told to turn left where the dogs sleep? Yes, but you know, for me, one of the things that you know it amazes it amazes me when I'm in the field is when people talk about smells. Oh. So and and you know sometimes they do it in an indirect manner. They they say you know you'll know where. You, that you have arrived because you can smell the thyme or the oregano. And this is something that in the monastic archives, you have certain toponyms that refer to smells as well. Wow. It does that we don't pay attention. We just think, oh, it's a name or oh, fine. But if you're there alone in that landscape, all of these things matter. <laughs> they they are ways of navigating. It's not just what you look at. It's what the sounds that you hear and what the smells and the way that your body is having this 
you know, embodied experience, basically. Yeah. So that's why I would like to know what she thinks about that. Right. right. All right, guys, uh, shall we move on to part three? So I'll make my pitch. Um, I'll try to make this brief uh, as I was thinking about this. Um, I had an abundance of riches, right, of ideas of people I'd like to talk to. Um, and in the end, I decided, at least for this iteration, to be absolutely strategic in a way that would gather as much information that we don't have uh, about as many topics that are important. And so it, it quickly narrowed down to the seventh century for me as a period that is really undocumented compared to other periods. And what I wanted to do is get um, social perspectives that we don't have and information about the crucial events of the seventh century that you know, played a role in affecting the lives of so many people even beyond the events themselves. And arguably the most important set of events uh, would be either the the war between the Romans and the Persians in the early seventh century or the expansion of Islam, of Arab, the Arab conquests and, and Islam. And the perspective that we most lack, I think, is that of slaves, uh, arguably women and slaves, but, um, but slavery is one of the most difficult experiences to access uh, in a number of ways uh, for, for all of the ancient world. And so I did some research. I. I I had a vague idea what I was looking for, and I found my, my guy. Uh, so this is a person called Suhaib the Roman. All right, and who's this guy? Well, he's one of the early companions of Muhammad. Um, but what he is, um, so he's the son of an Arab minor chief somewhere in Mesopotamia who is abducted uh, or carried away in a Roman raid. And he's taken to the Roman Empire, probably as a child, in the early 7th century, or, or late 6th century, actually, where he spends 20 years in, in slavery. And one way or another, he manages to escape or get away, or is bought by a visiting Arab from, or they've been called Saracen at the time, uh, from uh, Arabia, who takes him to Mecca. And he pretty soon becomes close with the prophet, Muhammad. And one of eventually his closest, you know, uh, supporters uh, later makes the move to Medina. Uh, that's more difficult for him because he has some locals who are uh, resisting him and whatever. Uh, but because he's lived for 20 years in the Roman Empire, he's considered a Roman. Uh, he speaks Greek um, and is um, some sources say that he's also Rum because he's blonde and blue eyed. Yeah, I mean, he's the son of an Arab from Mesopotamia, but whatever. Um, and and he's so he's very close to the movement uh, from the start, and so this is a person who whose experiences would give us insight into both slavery. So the, the experience of being carried away at a young age, uh, abducted, taken off into slavery, twenty years a slave in the Roman Empire, and then a firsthand account of the origins of Islam and the life of Muhammad, uh, which is, I mean, any information that he could provide uh, would both put sort of legions of scholars out of work, A, and two, create opportunities for another legion or more legions, right, to work on that testimony. Because as you may know, 
the information about the life of the prophet is later and very difficult to access. In fact, I'm just now reading uh, my colleague Sean Anthony's book uh, on Muhammad and, and just kind of working on the earliest, earliest sources that we have to try to figure out what can we know as historians about the origins of the movement. And so uh, a firsthand insider's perspective on that from someone who had both experience of the wider region, experience of moving from you know, polity to polity and experiencing all these different religions and moving from slavery to eventually a status of prestige. The early caliphs um, actually appointed him to lead the prayers of the Muslims. It's a very extraordinary uh, destiny that he had. And um, in addition to just the events of that, that period. So um, that was, that's, my, that's the person I found who would maximize um, sort of a, a new information punch, right? And in terms, so, and, and I've also indicated the kinds of topics that I would want him to talk about, primarily, you know, slavery, the events of the seventh century, but also, you know, his experience of Muhammad. And it, especially if he could do so in Greek, I mean, that would be amazing, right? If you could have a seventh century Byzantine Greek account of the life of Muhammad, that, I, I, I don't know, that would just be fantastic. Uh, I would be the one to, I, I would want to translate that uh, in, into English. Okay, so how would I conduct this? So he, I thought about this a little bit um, and I didn't want to put in the kind of work that Alexander did. <laughs> in structuring his interviews. <laughs> so I'm just too, too lazy for that, but I'm going to try to turn that into a virtue and say that I would just basically say, okay, here's a big topic, go. And just let him talk. Just let him talk and talk and talk because that way we'd get a record that's relatively unstructured from, you know, our questions. Um, and it might yield, you know, it might yield new insights as you know later generations of scholars would study it and you know because who knows you know what uh where it might go and what he might say but yeah those are just the main areas that i would uh that would ask him to focus on so that's my guy suhaib the roman you'd need at least 10 days i think <laughs> yeah yeah something like that yeah i would say you should just follow him around ask big questions, but also see what he's doing because you have someone who, you know, has a very, uh, has so many different experiences and also so, so many different perspectives of what identity is. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I mean, does he, is he the same person? Does he behave the same? Uh, you know, when he's uh, within the Byzantine world and when he's outside it. I mean, you know, for so many of us who, you know, come from one country and we live in another, we are never the same person. Uh, so, you know, exactly it would be very right. interesting to see, you know, how he performs, if you like, different aspects of that of himself within this different sociocultural and religious context. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it's a problem. It's a problem because the later layers of his experiences and life will override and reinterpret the previous ones. So, you know, you're going to get a later, like an early Muslims experience of what Roman slavery meant rather than a Roman slaves at the time. Right. And so, yeah, you're exactly right that all of these different layers distort each other. Right, but that's only a problem for us as, because we, as scholars, we want to tidy up. This yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, put you know the first phase yes. and 
that part of the identity. And you know, so uh, your your guy is is great to force us to stop having that bad behavior as color and embrace that complexity instead of wanting to uh, rule over it and making it clean. This is where I think for all of us who study the past, this is where we get into trouble because it's very easy for us to understand complexity about our past and about ourselves, but we deny the same complexity to the people we study in the past. Um, so yeah, so he, he, he's a good candidate for that to keep us honest in what we do. I mean, that would be fascinating to find out, I mean, Obviously, like you say, he'd be looking back at his experience of slavery through the prism of his later years. But, you know, to, to find out the, you know, the basic mechanics also what happened. I mean, what what did being a slave mean? Yes. Is this is this being tied in chains and, and horrors or was he, you know, was it was, was it more comfortable? Was it more regulated, organized? Or, uh, being... Yeah. Or indistinguishable from any other farmer on a on a. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially as, as we've talked about before, with these these cross frontier raids and, and people being carried off from from farming communities, and, mm -hmm. and then just settled in other areas. I mean, it was mm -hmm. the manpower they wanted. Um, yeah, uh, but he was taken away from his family at a relatively early age, uh, and this is this is exactly the kind of complexity that Fortini was talking about, in the sense that he was carried away by you know romans whom he would certainly have understood as his enemies and 20 years later when he moves to a different part of the world he's being regarded as one of them because of that experience so you know he's had to shift uh, some, in some cases forcibly uh from one persona to another yeah and and is classified in muslim tradition as 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 an ethnic roman in fact there's a story that you know, Muhammad was saying, you know how they made the Muslims made these lists of who was the first to do this and who was the first to do that and all of that. Um, and so in one of these traditions, Muhammad is making one of these lists, and he says that I'm the first to enter paradise among the Arabs, and so and so is the first among the Ethiopians, and Suhaib is the first among the Romans. And uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, I suppose the other the other thing about this 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 guy would be his ex well his knowledge of Mesopotamia because. You know, the, the, the frontier cut through communities which were very similar culturally, ethnically, in terms of their religion. Um, and that would be another interesting world to, to find out about, really. Um, yeah, so speaking about his background in Mesopotamia and these ruptures and weird uh, reversals in his, in his own personal history. Uh, so it was one of the early Muslim conquerors, uh, Khalid, who is said to have basically wiped out his clan when, so when Khaled invaded Southern Mesopotamia, he killed all of these people who were Suhaib's an, uh, family and ancestors. So he now belongs to this religious community that's now destroying his past, basically. Uh, actually, both of his pasts, uh, both the, uh, the Lakhmid Arab and the uh, Roman. But uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, basically, I just wanted an informant on events that we just don't know much about. Well, yeah, I mean, and then you, you, you have, you know, you're opening two very different discussions. The one that has to do with slavery. And I think, you know, we are now, I think, a little bit with more recent scholarship and work on this subject. We are a little bit better versed, I guess, in issues of slavery in the devil world. But I think in, you know, in mainstream scholarship, if I can put it like that, there is still this 
traditional thinking that, oh, Christian societies do not use slaves and slavery is not a thing. I mean, we stop with the Romans and then it all goes away and it's not. And we have, you know, again, you know, what Alex was saying before, what kind of slave would that be? You know, uh, what kind of trauma and violence he carries? How is he different from people who are used in a domestic setting as domestic slaves versus other people who can be in the in the battlefield or uh, whatever and how they're being moved how they're being sold uh, you know how their personhood is changing through these experiences mm -hmm. and then how it has to change again once they have moved away from that status I mean I think this is the you know the, these are still questions that I think Byzantine studies have way to go. And on the other hand, you know, I'm always very interested in understanding how religious, the religious idea spread. So here again, we have an opportunity to think we have, you know, this, this new uh, religion coming up, trying to convince people to get on board. So it's, it would be interesting to have, you know, a, an early account from such a person with these experiences explain to you how that works, especially, you know, at the time where he doesn't know how this is going to end, right, or if it's going to be successful. Uh, and I think, you know, that would allow us not only understanding a little bit more about the early days of Islam, but also in comparative terms, how these religious ideas and new religions can spread, why they can be successful or fail in other in other cases. So, you know, I think, I think he would make a great informant in that yeah. respect. I suppose another thing with these interviews would be to give them the opportunity to ask us questions about <laughs> what, what, what happened next. <laughs> oh, do we tell them now? <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't have the heart to tell Eleni uh, <laughs> about a lot of things. Yes. But, you know, but, you know, Alex, when you, when you were talking about yours, I kept thinking, what if you opened, um, you know, Procopius' work and said, let me let me read for you a paragraph and you know or ask him how do you feel if you knew that other people called you barbarian would what would you say to them in the same way that you know i always think that for eleni i would love to see her reaction saying to her you know there are people out there who believe that you never left your house and you didn't do anything outside your house you didn't have power and see her reaction and i, I always think you know the first thing she would do is show me her hands to show how you know as scarred they are from working in the fields and, and, and being outside uh, as a reply to, you know, that the Byzantine women were in the house and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, Hildegis would probably say, oh, Procopius, I met that guy at the court. <laughs> He's just a liar. Don't believe anything he says. <laughs> he has issues. <laughs> All right, guys, we're almost out of time. Um, any final thoughts on this whole discussion, this experience? Well, I mean, I, I think, I, as, I, as I mentioned at the end of my presentation, it's just, it really brings into sharp focus just how little we know about so much of this period, and especially as a number of things Fotinese talked about, these intricate details that we, we, we're trying to get at and can't from, from the sources. So, yeah, I think it's a very, very useful exercise. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same, that, you know, it's such a useful exercise because... Again, you know, we, we think about these people, you know, they are the objects of our study, right, and of our work. So we sometimes in our effort to make sense of all the information and also all the information that we don't have, we dehumanize them. Mm -hmm. We forget to ask, well, what did you eat? <laughs> uh, how is it to feel? How do you feel? You know, what did you do today? 
but you know, we are so hungry and eager to know more about them, uh, but we cannot get to them if we keep thinking them of the abstract, if we you know, uh, deprive them of their feelings, of their own um, personal likes and dislikes. You know, again, you know, going back to what um, Alex in your case, I kept thinking, I would love to know what they do, uh, you know, for good luck before they go to battle. Like, do they wear their gear in a certain way? Do they just cross themselves? Do they hold something for luck? I mean, you know, being superstitious, worrying about life, death. These are the things that sometimes forget. It's great to talk about empires and economy and politics, but we cannot get to these questions when we don't think about, you know, the protagonists and they're all protagonists. It's not just the emperor. So yeah, I, I you know, just, you know, I don't know when you send out the invitation and you ask us to think about that, I, I thought it was very valuable for the work we do. Yeah. Yeah. This was a kind of counterfactual research, right? <laughs> hypothetical research that we'll never get to do, but would like to. And I compare it to the work that many of our colleagues do in more modern areas of research, uh, have colleagues on the modern Greek program, whose work is almost entirely uh, based on precisely these kinds of interviews, uh, which they call ethnography, ethnographic interviews, and on dealing with live people, who, living people who can write back and say, I didn't mean that, I didn't say that, no, you got me wrong, right? Or who can disagree with you. And we're so used to our sources just keeping mum, right? Like you, we tell them, we tell them what they're saying. We tell them what they're doing, right? And they don't, they don't talk back really that much. Um, and so, I think actually, I, I think if, if if we did have access to these people, like like our, our modern modernist colleagues, yeah, uh, I'm not sure it would help us clear up many of these situations. If well, anything, it would probably complicate them further. I think the debate would definitely continue and just be much more complicated. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think. I, I will say that, you know, this is one of the things that I love about archaeology the most, that, you know, the moment you think you've got it right and you figured <laughs> something out, you know, you excavate something that introduced you to a world that you didn't even know that existed. And plus, it shows you that a lot of things that you published with so much confidence were wrong. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that that is a constant challenge of seeing things that you've never seen before and trying to fit them in an image that, you know, it's a moving target itself. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, you know, this is what study the, uh, studying the past means. That's, that's, that's the beauty of it. And we have to stay employed. I mean, we have to keep complicating things. Otherwise, you know, if someone has the final word, then that's that. <laughs> Well, we've only got about four sentences on Hildegas, for example, so in the in the sources. <laughs> oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It can't have been that much. All right. Well, thank you both. This is actually this was a lot of fun. Uh, this this was as as good as I had hoped and better. So thank you both for coming on. Thank well, thank you. Thank you for asking us. And yeah. I look forward to having you both on. You know, on a later suitable occasion. Next <laughs> book, whatever you you let me know. Okay. Bye. Bye. Perfect. Thank you.